0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter, with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash Ways.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
2: Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways 12 Days of Christmas Guests, where we're talking to a famous face about what the Second World War means to them. And today, we're continuing our series with the BBC newscaster, Sophie Rayworth.
0: Achtung, Achtung, merrily on high, welcome to uh, our We Have Ways of making you talk... Uh, 12 days of Christmas Christmas specials. Um,
2: Ding-dong-married on Actung.
0: Exactly. Actung, the Herald Angels sing, and so on. (laughs) But uh, last year, the last couple of years, we've done readings for Christmas, but we thought we'd do something a bit different. We thought we'd talk to some special guests about the Second World War, inevitably, but where it fits possibly into their lives and interests. So, Jim, who have we got today?
2: Well, we've got a wonderful guest today. We've got Sophie Rayworth, who needs very little introduction, but of course, she's one of the main faces of BBC News and an all-round good egg, and also an incredible runner. <laughs> it has to be said, you've done some amazing things, haven't you, Sophie? You, do, you kind of last time I saw you, you were you were racing a horse, I seem to remember, in Wales, and and I think you won, didn't you?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish. I know, that is a mad race. So basically, I love that because that started 30 years ago and it was a pub landlord who said to the, the guy who ran the local hunt, what do you think will be faster over 20 miles of the Brecon Beacons, a man or a horse? And so they decided to race it. And now, 30 years later, a 1,000 people go and do it every year. And they charge over the Brecon Beacons and the horses go alongside you. And as the horses come up alongside you galloping, people start shouting, horse, horse. And you have to duck out of the way into the bushes. <laughs> and people, sometimes, I think like three people in the whole history, three people have ever beaten the horse and they get quite a lot of money for doing it. And they did beat the horse last year it was quite extraordinary but i didn't wow wow
0: that sounds very sort of regency doesn't it betting on a man versus a horse it's the sort of thing it's the sort of thing you 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 bet your stately home on and lose isn't it Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but sophie there was another race i remember you doing uh, back in 2015 when we were both over doing bbc stuff for for the 70th anniversary of the normandy d-day landings and you were doing you were covering the heads of state at wiestraham But then you had to read the six o'clock news at Aramarch.
1: Oh, that was mad. And there was
2: total French lockdown. And the only way you could get to Aramarch was by cycling. (laughs) (laughs) So you cycled from Wieserhub. And I remember at the time, I was completely gobsmacked by this. I couldn't believe that you could have got there and kind of arrived in Aramarch with minutes to spare and look so sort of fresh and ready to do the news it was quite extraordinary i, I, was I love that i've totally forgotten
1: so. that that was and we do you remember that year it was really delayed it was like an uh, the whole service the whole ceremony on the beach that's right um was very french it and was putin it, was there wasn't he he was wasn't he yes and it was an hour delayed um, and I thought, and it, there were such tight roadblocks, and I had to get to Arromanches, which was where the BBC program, BBC bulletins, were going from. And it was the sort of you know first floor. Well, it
2: was that studio, oh. wasn't there? They they put up that pop up studio on the, in a cafe on the roof of of the Marine, the Hotel de la Marine. Yeah, it was. It
1: was in the first floor. It was just in the windows. <laughs> so uh, an amazing view. And I, I so I said, well, I'll get there. And they went, you won't be able to. And I went, I will. I'll get a bike. And so I hired a bike. And I cycled um from really fast, <laughs> as fast as I could. I pedaled out of Wistrum to Aramanche. And about halfway through, I realized this was quite a long way. And I saw some <laughs> I saw some Italians who were in a um, they were in like a World War II, like a Humvee or something, one of these extraordinary big vehicles. And I I thought, I looked at them and I kind of waved and I thought I could get my bike in the back there. And I looked at them and they sort of looked at me and then they drove off. And I tried to say something to them and I thought, this is ridiculous, keep cycling. And then they realised, I think, what I was going to say. And they actually pulled up. And I spoke very little Italian. I could just say my name and I could say I am English. And I said, I work for, I said, I am at the BBC. And they kind of, through sign language, we dumped my back in my bike in the back of their, what the huge vehicle, World War II vehicle. And they drove me to Aramorish. <laughs> It's amazing it was brilliant
2: just absolutely brilliant and then they and then, they, and then
1: they dropped me oh then they, they dropped me at the bottom of a hill then we realized my bike had a puncher i mean i'm this is all the six o'clock news coming up my bike had a puncher so oh no i didn't have a puncher the chain came off so the guy the italian really <laughs> sweet got his hands <laughs> completely amazing. filthy and then put my chain back on for me and then i got up the hill and i got on the six o'clock news i had about half an hour to spare but i did it <laughs>
2: It was amazing, and you, but the but the key thing is is you look completely unflustered.
1: <laughs> that's what news is all about. It's always completely. It's always very last minute, and my my job is to look unflustered. Yeah, <laughs> but if that's thirty kilometres. That's that's
0: no that's no. I mean, that's a, a fair old distance to just say, yeah, I'll do that. It's 18 think, miles or so, I, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I was in a, I was in a dress as well from memory, I think, <laughs> and I remember going. <laughs> I must look completely ridiculous I remember going across a zebra crossing too fast and then somebody stepping out on it and shouting at me in French and I was like oh yeah it was quite funny I do. I'd forgotten
2: that. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a day for lycra, was it? Because you <laughs> were in your dad rags for the for the for the <laughs> presidents and prime yeah. ministers. But and, I like um, a challenge.
1: I like a challenge. <laughs> I remember funny. thinking, I'm going to do this, well, and yeah, no, I'm going to prove to them I can. <laughs> it was the most glorious day. It was an
2: absolutely beautiful day, and and I remember that that in the evening the tide was out, so you'd finished your skit on the 6 o'clock News. The tide was was long out, and Dan Snow was there, mm. and. And, and, um, Sean
1: Williams, I think was there as well. There were a whole lot of us
2: out Sian there. Sean Williams was there. Sean yeah. was there. Yes, absolutely. Anita Rani was there. Anita Rani. It was and amazing. And we were out on the beach mm-hmm. and there were loads of build, loads of, of, jeeps and ducks and other vehicles out on the beach. And I remember afterwards, we were all kind of sort of ever so slightly demob happy. And, um, I remember being out on the beach on this incredibly long beach at Aramarch by all those sort of abandoned bits of concrete it's a
1: very eerie it's very eerie game I've been there back back there many times and it's I always find it very um you do stand there and especially particularly when you've got the veterans there um and who I've, I've worked to, I've, I think I went to my first D-Day commemoration in 1994 so they were all in their sort of 60s and 70s and now you go back and the last one I went to and they're in their 90 you know the youngest is now what 95 and there was still last time I went there was still a lot there were a few hundred people there but it is it's extraordinary stand on those beaches and you just imagine what these very old men remember and it always strikes me how vivid them their memories are Um, I'm always amazed by how they just there are moments of that time that they have clearly they will never forget and standing on those beaches particularly for them must bring it all back
2: well I do remember that one we did a a bio the last one I remember sort of hurtling in there having to run across it was it wasn't quite as bad as you having to go from (laughs) but I had to run across Across Bayer in a three-piece wool suit. <laughs> and it was incredibly hot again. Oh
1: yes, that one. You were late. Yes, I remember that. Yeah,
2: your, it wasn't your fault. Yeah, 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 I was late because the because because the ferry was late. the boat getting in was late, and then the ferry got stuck because of yet again the French roadblocks. But afterwards, I remember you know it was all done and everything. We we all went into the uh, went actually into this into the cemetery, and there was an old bloke there in his wheelchair, and he said, "Oh, I've just I've just found my mate. I've just found my mate," and it, and his this guy had. and um he found his the grave of this friend of his who had been you know obviously a a, a pretty young at the time and he remembered exactly how this guy had died and basically they'd been they were being mortared and shelled and and this this guy he was next to in his in a slit trench had just lost the plot and suddenly jumped out of his out of the slit trench and ran towards the germans who just cut him down and he said what did he say? He said he was nineteen, and I'm ninety nine. I'm about to be a hundred. And there was just this pause where we all thought this guy's had eighty years that that other guy didn't have, and it was just an it was incredibly potent moment. It was very, very moving. Now,
0: now, Sophie, when we met, it was on that book program, and. Um... I, I'd recommended Catch Twenty Two, which I assume you haven't read yet. Read
1: yet, yet, yet is the important word. But you, word.
0: you, you mentioned your your grandfather and the work he did in the in the in the second during the Second World War, which you, I think you've you've made a film about. Am I right in thinking that, or you've made a? A, a I did. A li-
1: I did a piece about it for the news. Yeah, we just did. A, we did a few years ago. We all did something about you know with people's war and just about the different you know, war efforts of, of people in our newsroom and their relatives. Because you know, you when you talk to people, people always have these amazing stories, don't you?
0: Yeah, and he was a surgeon. Am I right?
1: He was. He was a surgeon. He was called Ernest Alexander Nicol. And he was a surgeon. Um, he was, went to Cambridge Medical School, and then he went to St. George's and trained in, in medicine. And he was a general, he was a general surgeon at Mansfield um, General Hospital. And he basically, uh, he opened this place called, he, so he didn't go to war. I think he, he was late 30s. Yeah, he was late 30s um, during World War Two, And so he very much stayed doing work on the home front. So he saw that yeah, you know, well, he basically he, he was one of the early pioneers of rehab. So he was living in the in the Midlands, in the East, West Midlands and East Midlands, and it was full of collieries, and you know, coal was absolutely vital to the war effort. Um, and he saw how many people he was getting all these people coming into the hospital who were written off. There was nothing to, you know, they they had an injury in a a mine. And that was it. Um, They, you know, the young men, and they had to stop working. And so he decided that he was going to, um, with, you know, alongside the collieries, try and get people back to work. So he set up this thing called Berry Hill Hall, which was in Mansfield, and it was a sort of old stately home, and they took it over, and it was the first time that people had actually said, "Okay, you have broken your back or you have broken a limb, but we're going to actually get you back to work because they needed people. They needed the miners, didn't they? They had yeah. to have that coal yeah. for the for the war effort. Um, so they turned this this home into, you know, what you'd now is it was a sort of rehab center. They people would go and live there, and they would get." them, um, they had a gym and they had, I mean, there's amazing footage where they have sort of pulleys with what looked like huge bags of flour on the bottom and they'd have to exercise their legs. And what he worked on was the fact that, you know, it wasn't just a broken bone. It was about Building up the muscles that supported the bones, um, so he made these miners, you know, do all this really work hard. And it was the, it was the notion that at that time it, that that's not how people understood it. But he had this whole thing about how you have to do the work to get your body back in in yeah. shape so that yeah. you can go back to work. Um, and he he was amazing. He transformed the lives of of so many people who otherwise, in those days, in the late 30s, you if you had an injury like that, if you, you know, smashed your, your leg or your knee or your shin or whatever, it was an amputation. That's how they fixed it. So yeah. he, he turned them around and he, he ended up with, I think he had like a 1,000 minors going through his centre every year and, and most of them, like 90% of them, went back to work. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, yeah that, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It was. And then, I mean, you see, you sort of… He, you know, it wasn't, it was very new. And so when he when he did it, it was the first one um, that they set up. And by the end of World War II, I think we're, there were about six centres like that around the country. Um, and they all realised the benefit of actually, you can't, you shouldn't, you can't write people off. And before yeah. people were just written off if you got injured, that was it. And they put me, as part of that film, they put me down a mine um, in Yorkshire. I went down this mine and it was just to give me an idea of what it was like. And, oh my God, the conditions, and I knew the conditions were bad, but just the claustrophobia of being under there and the noises and the creaking. And, you know, the place I was in was a museum and very safe, but they, they were working, There were particularly, you know, the Bevan boys later on when they were conscripted. And these mm. were young men who, who thought that they were going to go to war and suddenly were told, no, actually you're going to go down the mines. And they had no experience whatsoever. And they're put into these really frightening situations and where there were you know, rock falls and you could be injured at, at any moment. Um, so no, he, he, was, uh, he was extraordinary. I mean, I never really knew about it until after he died. That's the awful thing, isn't it? With your, your grandparents, I knew lots of what he did later in life, but he never, I never really talked to him about that. Gosh.
3: We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, at the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, said, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
2: When you went down that mine, so it actually creaks, does it? I mean, you could hear even in the.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's more it's more the sort of. I mean, that one is very well pinned up, but there was a less, there was a huge lift, and it just takes you down into the bottom, and it's, it's just tiny corridors and yeah. going left, going right, and crawling under these spaces. And you maybe in my head it creaked. I don't know. Well, it was it felt it felt right. quite scary. <laughs> I mean, they're
0: staggeringly claustrophobic places, aren't they? They're, they're horrible, and and there is the feeling that hundreds of metres down and the mm. you know the earth the earth could sort of clear its throat and you'd be squished and no one would ever know. I mean it's a it's a, yeah. a very, very strange feeling. I mean, you must have been down if you've been down a mine, Jim. Your parents they did they have their down a mine when you were young? I I d I don't know.
2: Well they didn't actually know <laughs> chimney. They, I, I, no, didn't have to do any of that. I have been down the Merka's mine, which is is it in Thuringia or somewhere like that? It's it's where they found all the gold at the end of the end of the Second World War, and it's a German mine, and it's absolutely vast. And they've actually got vehicles. The the, the you know you're a, you're a kilometre down or whatever, and you go in these down in these lifts, and down on the there's this huge sort of they it's very low ceiling, but they're quite wide, so they're wide enough for a truck to go across. So you get into these kind of sort of weird, really sort of low level trucks, and you beetle around this mine. And it just goes on and on and, on and on and on and on and it's really warm, um, and and incredibly claustrophobic, but obviously not claustrophobic in the same way as going down pit because, you know, what you were saying is it's incredibly narrow mines and all the rest of it, and, and and shafts and little corridors and all the rest of it. This this was huge, but it was a it's a deeply unsettling thing. I mean, you you know, you're very happy when you're out of there.
1: I hadn't realised when I mean when I made when I made that film, um, you know, talking to I went met a Bevan boy who was in his nineties. Um, and that I found fascinating because obviously there were so many of them, like fifty thousand, went there who were conscripted, and it was so random that it was such a lottery as to whether or not you were going to be sent down the mine. It was, it was Bevan, the, the War Office they, or the Employment Office, they just chose a number, and that that batch would that I think it was every fortnight, and they randomly chose a number, and that ten percent of men were sent down the mine rather than going to war, and for the for the Bevan boys. They, the way this guy talked to me about it was how, you know, he, he wasn't able to fight for his country, that they wanted, you know, everybody else was going off to, he got, everybody else got a uniform and went off to fight for their country. And he was sent down the mine. He had to buy his own helmet and he had to buy his own boots, he said. And uh, and they got no recognition for it until so many you know decades later, wasn't it? It was in the nineties. They finally got the recognition for it, and that whole sort of stigma surrounding it, where people thought that some of the miners were sort of accused of being deserters, not deserters, but not pulling their effort, not going to the not going to the front when they, in fact, they had no choice.
0: Yeah, they were seen as conchies, weren't they? You know, Eric Morcombe was a Bevan boy.
1: No, I didn't know that. Wow,
2: I never knew that. Yeah, yeah it must be. It must have been really hard, wasn't it? Yeah. Because, also the other thing is, you know, if you're going down the, down the pit every day, that's not exactly like they're letting you off a, off the life You know, the, the the death sentence that you might be if you're in a tank because it's also incredibly dangerous.
1: Yeah,
2: mm. yeah. So you're you're still putting your your life on the line without without the kudos. Yep, really tough. And you've got no recourse, have you? So you can't just go, no, I don't want to do this. I want to go and be a gunner. You no, they were sent so to prison, weren't
1: they? They were sent to prison. They had they had to do it. And if you didn't do it, you, you'd be sent to prison. When the war ended, they, they were still conscripted, weren't they? I think it was still, was the last ones were let out in 1948, I think. So it was a long time after the war yeah. ended. that That's the uh, That the miners were finally allowed to, you know, to stop working in the mines.
0: Yeah. And every now and again, someone from a posh school would end up working in a mine as well. They, they did have that because they were conscripted. You'd get the odd person who'd suddenly find themselves in a, in a working class environment. They never imagined they'd ever find themselves in. I'm not sure any actual old Etonians ended up mining, but people who really expected to become officers, um, ended up, ended up mining, which I think is amazing. The sort of jumble of, of the whole thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, apparently some of them were Gina. They, 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 it was so random that the people had been training. They'd been training to go to war and they would literally from one day to the next be told, actually, you're going down the mines. You're staying here. You're not going abroad. You're staying here and you're, uh, you're going to go and, and get coal. It was that random.
0: It is interesting, though, that the idea that you would rehabilitate your workers and patch them back together and th- th- that was a good thing is the idea that it's actually it's quite new. Is a bit is a little is a little shocking, isn't it? Or revealing in mm. terms of social attitudes that you would that if if someone had a fall in the mind, well, that's their tough luck, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there was something about um. I think he, I think my grandfather wrote. Uh, he wrote some paper about it, and it was. And this is the late nineteen thirties, like nineteen thirty nine, and it was the notion that you actually actively there was a sort of passive um, nature of the doctor and that you were, the emphasis was on you to do the exercise. You had to work really hard, um, which is very modern now. You know, if I, if I get a running injury now, I know I have to do the rehab the doctor's not going to be able to sort it out for me. Well, they can tell me what it is and what I need to do, but I have to do it myself. Um, and you know, they had these in the grounds they had, they would do, they do sport and they do, um, my mum remembers going there as a child and just watching, you know, seeing them, Doing sport and you know games and throwing balls around and just all just about getting the body moving again, um, and and then they put be put to work in the laundry or it was just about making the body move um, and getting getting over the injury and and people had these awful injuries back. There's a, they've got there was a film that was made with my with grandpa with this guy in a sort of he looks like he's if you can imagine being in a hammock. But you're actually facing down. You're, you're on your stomach, so you're kind of in a hammock shape, but with your stomach and your head up and your legs, you know, your feet coming up at the end. And he's being bandaged up into sort of a cast. So he's been put in, set in cast from his shoulders all the way down to, to his waist or beyond. Um, and they they treat them like that, and then they would sort of you know get them out of that and then get them into sort of physical rehab. Um, amazing, absolutely incredible to see. I, I wish I'd talked to him about it more he talked he talked more about he was a, he became an orthopedic surgeon so he was one of the first in the nhs and he did you know he spent the rest of his career in the nhs as a surgeon but i never ever spoke to him about about that place and i went when i went back it was really eerie walking it's now been turned into flats but just i bet it was very funny walking yeah. around thinking my grandfather you know opened this and walked you know this is where he would have been striding the corridors yeah. and um and yeah it's quite quite extraordinary thinking he did that
2: and have you got any other um, sort of Second World War heritage in your family? Because I I don't really have any. Um, I'm rather rather envious of Al because he's you know he had a grandfather who was a hero in in 1940 and a, another grandfather who who was doing amazing diplomatic things in Greece at the end of the war and and all sorts. And both mine were um, they were auxiliary firemen, one in Birmingham, one in London. But but no one who was actually sort of actively serving or anything.
1: No, mine. I, makes me sound really old, but my other grandfather was World War One. <laughs> yes, yeah, same, same with me. I can me. never. I can never quite. Um, I can never quite get my head around. Um, so he was World War One. He was a pilot in the RAF. And uh, very he, good. Wow. Well, he wasn't even an RAF. He was Royal Flying Corps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at the age of seventeen, he he joined the Royal Flying Corps. And he was, yeah, he was flying those, I mean, he was pl- flying de Havillands, which are, you know, like, like flying mm-hmm. wooden wooden aircraft with linen wings and flying those over, over France, um, which I find extraordinary because my daughter's just about to turn 17. And I cannot imagine, you know, she's a child, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's still a child. Yeah. And the notion of those, them going to war at that age. And, you know, when you see all the way, you know, you and I, you and I we've, we've all seen the, the veterans on a D-Day and how young they were yeah. when they went to war. And I look at my own children, my daughters, one of them is 18, one's about to be 17. I can't imagine them doing that, going off to war or going to, you know, to do anything like that. Incredible. Yes,
2: just, they're just not old enough. They're no? just not old <laughs> enough to do that, that kind of thing. No.
1: And yet they did.
2: No, I think it's interesting though. Well, I, you know, and it's interesting, You know, when, you, when one looks at sort of diaries and things, you start to see that a lot of these young men, they are still, they're, they're boy men. You know, they're not, Mm. They're not fully grown up. They, they might be old enough to go to war and command a tank or whatever, um, but they're definitely not kind of fully formed and fully grown up by any stretch of the imagination. You can see it in the language of the letters and diaries and stuff. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, which is maybe what the whole thing relies on in the end is young people. You know, I, I'd be saying, "Come off it! I'm not doing that." <laughs> I'm, I'm old. Yeah. I'm old. i have got
1: a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah, I mean, they, exactly. They had the. It was for them. It was the excitement, wasn't it? It was the thrill. It was going abroad. It was. It was. You know, for my World War One grandfather, it was flying. I mean, can you imagine getting? I'd. I'd, I'd done quite a lot of stuff in military aircraft um, in the last ten years, which is ridiculous because I really don't like flying very much. Although they've cured me, uh, but I did. I, they put me up in a De Havilland, and i just thought how could you that that was less than 10 years after the first manned flight um and those young men going up in the skies and not just only flying but fighting each other yeah in you know un- unbelievable yeah what they what they then did yeah, yeah. So but then i suppose it was also that it was it was that or the trenches wasn't it mm. Mm.
0: exactly ah, well thank you sophie for for chatting with us um Is there, is there, apart from the, is there anywhere where your grandfather's work is sort of, you know, commemorated or logged? If you wanted to learn about this history, where would you do it?
1: Um, There's a whole, there was a website for Berry Hill Hall in Mansfield. There's quite a lot written about that. Yeah, And then, uh, (laughs) and there is something called the Nickel's Plate. He was called Ernest Nickel. The Nickel's Plate, which you won't be able to see because it's in people's knees but oh wow well. <laughs> he... so he got a he got a medical a medical device named after <laughs> he's him got, he's got the nickels plate which is some sort of metal thing they put in knees because obviously none, the miners have to crawl around and and it was all about yeah it was yep. what what they put into the knee to allow the miners to to get back to work so uh... that's surely
0: the thing <laughs> all doctors aspire to is a medical
2: application <laughs> named after
0: them i mean that's that's oh, no. that's the hall of greats that's fantastic
2: <laughs> that's... <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that's very good, isn't
1: it? It was amazing when I, after I did that piece on the news a few years ago and the number of emails I got from people saying, I remember your grandfather. He treated my father. He saved my father. He did this. He did that. And the number, it quite clearly had a profound impact on a lot of people's lives. Um,
2: well, you must be rather proud I was you? really
1: proud I just, I couldn't believe what he'd done but um yeah but it was incredible <laughs> that all these people remembered him and you know it had obviously turned people's lives around which is what what the whole point was of the rehabilitation getting them back to work
0: well fantastic well thank you so much for talking to us um lovely uh, to talk to you have both. a wonderful christmas i will i will <laughs> and you enjoy it thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again soon cheerio
2: cheerio
0: bye, bye.